If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Joshua chapter 9. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 9 this morning. Uh, In your pew Bibles in front of you, that starts on page 184. Joshua chapter 9. Well, have you ever watched one of those crime shows uh, where they're kind of looking back at a well-orchestrated crime that eventually got caught? Uh, They walk through exactly how the bad guys set up the heist, how they got out of the building, how they got away, and on and on and on. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm watching those shows and I'm thinking, Wow, that's pretty impressive, ingenious even. Uh, Maybe that's why Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, that's a little bit how I read Joshua chapter 9. It's hard not to have some sympathy in this text for the people known as the Gibeonites. But before we dive into that text, here's kind of a, a big picture view of what's going on in the book of Joshua so far. Uh, In the book of Genesis, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, God made a promise to this guy named Abraham that he would be Abraham's God, that he would give Abraham offspring or, or children, and third, that he would give Abraham land. The book of Joshua is the story of those promises at least reaching stage one of fulfillment. Abraham's family has now become vast. They're God's chosen people, and they're entering the land that God promised, a land called Canaan, and they're learning to live under God's rule. So God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, We've learned that this is the basic definition of the kingdom of God throughout Scripture. And so far, we've seen God promise his presence to his people. We've seen him save unlikely converts, uh, Rahab the prostitute in Joshua 2. We've seen Joshua lead God's people across the Jordan River on dry ground into the land. We've seen God miraculously win battles for his people. We've seen his people sin. We've seen them repent. And we've seen God give them uh, forgiveness and give them hope. And last week, we saw God's people renew their covenant with him. And that leads us to this amazing chapter, Joshua 9. So let's read the text, Joshua 9, verses 1 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea, toward Lebanon, The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, 
So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? Then uh, they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived at, at, in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharim, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be on us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Today, uh, I want to tackle this chapter in four different ways. Uh, point number one, what exactly happened? Two, Israel's folly. Three, honoring God. And four, blessing in disguise. So let's dive in. Point one, what happened? 
first, let's look at this from Israel's side. Uh, look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Uh, this is almost identical language to chapter 5, verse 1. But there in chapter 5, uh, the, these people in the land hear about all of this, and the, it says the kings and people's hearts melted. Uh, that's in chapter 5. But here, their reaction is a bit different. Instead of their hearts melting, they band together against God's people. Well, this certainly is not the main point of the text. Uh, the author of Joshua wants us to understand that there's no easy days in the Christian life. Uh, right on the heels of this amazing covenant that, and this renewal ceremony at the end of chapter 8, is this glorious moment, uh, they're experiencing opposition. Right on the heels of that. Both out in the open, with all of these people who are gathering together, and... We're about to find out, not just in the open, but covertly. So you've got this, this coalition against God's people gearing up. And what are Israel's marching orders? What have they been told to do when they go into the land? As with last week, we've got to look to Deuteronomy to find out what they were commanded to do. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. Deuteronomy 20 10 through 18. It says, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But it, if, it, if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which, you are, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breeds. But you shall devote them to complete destruction." the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So these are, are the Israelites' marching orders. And weirdly enough, these people in the land, the, the Gibeonites, they seem to know about these commands. They know about the command to put them to death. And, and they've now watched this happen to both Jericho and to Ai. So think about that. But put, that, put yourself in their shoes. What would you be thinking? You've watched Israel march in and destroy Jericho. You've watched them march in and destroy Ai. What would you be thinking? What would you do? if you're in the Gibeonite shoes. Well, we know from verse 24 exactly what the Gibeonites were thinking. 
Uh, when Joshua asked them why they did what they did, here's what they say. Verse 24, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. So you see this, this language that they're using. They say, for a certainty. They knew that because God had commanded it, that it was going to happen. So what did they do? Back to Deuteronomy 20. They keyed in on Deuteronomy 20, verse 15, which says this. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you. So it's talking about this, these peace treaties that can be offered to cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So they saw that opening and they took it. If they could be a city very far from you and not a city of the nation here, they knew that they could be offered a peace treaty. They could do forced labor instead of facing certain death. So they brilliantly and deceptively made it look like they had come from a city far away. Verse 4 even kind of tips the cap to them and says, they on their part acted with cunning. They get a bunch of worn out stuff and old crumbly food and they loaded up their donkeys. It's humorous almost. It's like a movie when one of the characters has a bad disguise and you know who they really are, but the other characters just don't see it. That's what's going on here in Joshua 9. So they stroll up in their bad disguises, and they, they say, uh, you can almost hear them kind of whispering behind themselves. What's the language we're supposed to use here? Uh, oh, yeah, we're from far away. Now make a covenant with us. At this point, some of the Israelites almost sniff it out. Look at verse 7. They say, uh, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? But the Gibeonites continue on with their ruse and they move towards flattery. Look at this, verses 8 through 13. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Because, here's the flattery, because of the name of your, the Lord your God, for we have heard report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to Og, Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and the, all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is very dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. You see that? We are your servants. We traveled a long distance because of the name of the Lord your God. We've heard great things about you. We've heard about all that he did in Egypt, which, you know, Egypt is a long way off. 
We've heard what, what you did to the two Amorite kings, which is outside of our, I mean, this land. We haven't heard anything about Jericho. We haven't heard anything about AI. No siree. We don't know about anything local. How could we? Remember, we're from, from far away. Look, here's our fake worn out stuff. So Israel makes a covenant with them. And verse 15 says, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to to them. All of us saw the the hook behind the bait. We, We knew that these were bad disguises. But Israel falls for it. And it only takes them three days to figure it out. Verses 16 and 17, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepherah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. Something I want us to see in this text is this. Uh, Opposition to the people of God comes in all shapes and sizes. Uh, The first verses of chapter 9 clue us in to some open, visible, obvious hostility that is gearing up against God's people. Then it quickly shifts gears to tell us this story. We're going to learn in chapter 10, verse 2, that that these Gibeonites weren't wimps. Uh, They were actually warriors. But they decide instead of open warfare to deceive. Just because opposition isn't visible doesn't mean it's not real. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So whether overt or covert, Satan doesn't want God's purposes to succeed. We've seen this in the Bible from the very beginning. When Satan slithered up to Eve, he didn't come with horns and a pitchfork. Instead, He pretended to be a friend. Satan is crafty and deceptive. Sin often looks great because it never advertises its consequences. Now, where did the Israelites go wrong here? That's kind of what happened in a nutshell, but where did Israel go wrong? Point two, Israel's folly. So, The Gibeonites, they get on their disguises, they trot up to Joshua and the people of Israel, and they ask for a peace treaty. But what will Israel and Joshua decide to do? Will they take the visible evidence at face value? I mean, look, their clothes are worn out, and their wineskins are old. And the bread, come on, the bread's crumbly, don't you see it? Oh, and and did you see their shoes? No way those shoes haven't been traveled in. Will the Israelites go by what they think they see and hear? Or will they obey the law given to Moses? 
Here's what Numbers chapter 27, 21 told them to do in this instance. Numbers 27, 21. So when the law didn't cover a particular circumstance, like whether or not to make a particular covenant, here's what it says that they were to do. They were to stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. Both he and all the people, so he is speaking of Joshua, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. In other words, whenever they were in doubt, they were supposed to seek the Lord, to inquire of the Lord. Now, back to our text, verse 14. This is kind of the, the oh no moment of the text. Verse 14, it says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Ah. They, they walked by sight and not by faith. I don't know about you, but I can relate to Joshua and Israel on this one. It's so much easier and quicker and more efficient to just make decisions logically and with no prayer at all. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one who fails at this regularly. It's so easy to make decisions without ever seeking the Lord. Nobody here in the text asked God what they should do. They didn't follow the Lord's word in Deuteronomy or seek his counsel. And that's a tragedy. They didn't seek the Lord, but completely ignored him. Instead, they made a binding covenant with the enemy and sealed it with an oath. So often, God's waiting for us to seek him to pray to him. He's ready to guide our steps and give us direction through his word. But we, like Joshua and Israel, have it all under control. Look what James chapter 1, verse 5 tells us. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God is generous with wisdom when we seek him and when we ask. But we so often rely on our own understanding instead. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 implores us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, this isn't, I want to be clear, this isn't a plea for just sticking your head in the sand and ignoring reason. Uh, the Bible is not anti-reason. Also, this isn't a command to be paralyzed in your decisions. Should I love my wife? Better spend several hours praying about that. No, I should love my wife. Why? Because God's already revealed it to me in his written word. Should I teach my kids the gospel? Should I care for widows and the poor? Should I be part of a local church? All of these things have already been spelled out for us in God's word. The point here isn't that we become paralyzed. The point is that we should pray. Instead of ignoring God, we should seek him regularly. 
This was Israel's folly, and it led to a terrible decision. So how about us this morning? What would it look like for us to seek the Lord in the new year? I know we've got a couple weeks before it's New Year's resolution time, but what if you took some focused time to seek the Lord about next year? Husbands, what does God want for your family next year? Again, a lot of that's already spelled out in God's word. But how you obey those commands in the specifics requires some prayer. What if you spent this week seeking the Lord about 2020 in your family? Wives, what does your calendar look like? What if instead of just filling it up, you sought the Lord and asked wisdom on what events and sports and engagements you put, put your kids in? Singles, you have more discretionary time than anyone. What if you took a couple of hours today to seek the Lord about how to leverage this season of life for God's glory? Young adults, you've got decisions ahead of you too. School, majors, boyfriends, girlfriends, have you sought the Lord at all? Friends, when we don't seek the Lord, we can easily end up trusting in worn-out clothes and patched sandals and moldy bread. What God has for you is so much better than that. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. And he's waiting to give you wisdom if you ask. Now, the Israelites clearly didn't seek God, but they did make a covenant. So what now? Point three, honoring God. Look with me at verses 15 through 20 in our text. It says, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now, their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be on us, because of the oath that we swore to them. So, bad decision that they weren't supposed to make. They, they should have sought the Lord. They didn't. So, they should just void the contract, right? No, that's not what they do. I remember growing up, uh, we, our family used to eat at Furs Cafeteria. Don't judge me. We loved it. Well, at Furs, you could put all you could eat on your tray. And my dad always had a rule for us. Whatever you put on your tray, you're going to eat. Well, one time we were there, and I can't remember if it was Ross or me, but one of us loaded up our tray. Bad decision, because we clearly didn't need that much food. But regardless of that bad decision, 
We had to eat it all. The Israelites made a bad decision, but they had to keep their word. Why? Look at verse 18. It says, But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation, here it is, had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. God's name is literally on the line here. They made a promise by the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. At this point, it doesn't matter how they made their bad decision. They had to keep their promise or bring disrepute upon God. So see this, to to not honor their promise would have said something about their God. It, It would have said, our God is like this. He doesn't keep his promises when he makes them. Do you see how big of a deal this is? Bringing it closer to home, the same is true for us as Christians. You bear the name of Christ. Everything you do, especially when you make promises, says something about Christ, for good or for bad. So when you're generous, you reflect that Christ is generous. When you're loving, you reflect that Christ is loving. And when you make a promise and keep it, regardless of why you made that promise, you reflect that Christ is faithful and keeps his promises. It's possible to make a bad decision and then bring honor to Christ after that bad decision. For an extreme example, I think about pregnancy outside of marriage. Was it sinful to have sexual relations outside of marriage? Yes, but we don't add sin to sin and incur more wrath by killing that child. You might not have experienced that exact extreme situation, but I'm sure we've all made bad decisions. There's always hope of honoring God from that point forward. Here's a less extreme example. Maybe you took a job, and you told them that you were going to be there for a year. Well, week two rolls around, and you hate it. But you made a commitment. You can honor the Lord by keeping your word. Or here's even a less extreme example that most of us probably relate to. I know I do. Uh, You told someone that you'd be somewhere without really thinking about it. Well, the time rolls around and you have something better to do. Will you honor your word and reflect that Jesus is faithful and always keeps his word? The honor of God was at stake here in Joshua. Is he a God who always keeps his promises or not? Look what the text tells us in verse 27. It says, But Joshua made them, speaking of of the Gibeonites, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So whenever Joshua was written at a later time than this scene that he's describing, the Gibeonites were still around. In fact, Saul incurs guilt later in history for trying to put these same Gibeonites to death. Look at what God says to David. This is uh, forward in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 and 2. It says, 
Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So God takes the honor of his name seriously. Amazingly, centuries later, uh, even after Israel has been exiled out of the land and taken to Babylon, and then returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, amazingly, even then, the Gibeonites are still there helping build the walls. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 7. It's talking about all of these Israelites building the walls, and it says, And next to them repaired Melathah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marathite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah. God is a faithful God who always keeps his promises. Does your life reflect that? Finally, I want us to see that for these Gibeonites, there was a blessing in disguise. Point four, a blessing in disguise. Through this deception, the Gibeonites' lives were spared first and foremost. So that's a blessing, but there's even more to it. Look with me at starting in verse 19. Verse 19, it says, But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So they get to live, and they're cutters of wood and drawers of water. But where? Look at verse 23. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. What's their response to this? Verse 24. And they answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. So they have a common fear for their lives, but they also clearly feared Israel's God. According to Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of Wisdom. They have some wisdom. They they fear the Lord here. Then look at verse 27. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So they weren't just any old cutters of wood and drawers of water. They're in the temple. Do you see this? They have a front row seat to see the works of God firsthand. Day in and day out, these people got to see that there was forgiveness of sin and that God was worthy of worship. By by Nehemiah chapter 7, 
These people seem to be fully integrated into God's people, just like Rahab. Isn't this so much like God? Satan tries to deceive Israel and destroy her from within, and God uses these people to keep the altar fires in the temple going and to keep water flowing for the the cleansing rituals. He uses Satan's attempts and turns them into worship. The very thing that he intended for, for evil, God preserves and uses in his providence. Isn't God amazing? He can't be tricked or outmaneuvered. He can turn a curse into a blessing. Do you know that we serve the same God today? He never changes. He can't be tricked or outmaneuvered. No matter what's going on in your life right now, he's aware of it. He's not surprised. He's sovereign over it. And he's doing something purposeful. Even in the hard things, God knows what he's doing. Many times, like with Israel, he's protecting us from ourselves. Even in in the midst of bad decisions, he's able to turn curse into blessing. I'm struck by this story in how God works. In the process of redeeming the Gibeonites, he assigns them to the temple where they're going to watch the worship of God and the sacrifices of God on repeat, day in and day out. Christian, do you know that that God's still doing that today? But instead of the temple, he's using you. How does God redeem the Gibeonites today? He brings them and he gives them a front row seat to your life where they can see the word and hear the word and experience the word through you on repeat. That's our calling in life, to display the works and worship of God in all that we do everywhere we go. Isn't that astounding? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so grateful that you're here. We hope that that you felt welcome this morning. And we want you to know that this story is more than just a fable. This God from this story is absolutely real. He's the God of the universe who created everything, including you. And he's glorious. If you've heard nothing else today, I want you to hear and see this in the text. The Gibeonites ultimately find shelter amidst God's people instead of incurring God's wrath. God redeems them, not because they deserved it, but because God is good and faithful. We want you to know that that can be true for you today, too. The Bible teaches the truth that every single one of us has sinned against God, that that every sin that we have against God deserves eternal death. But we like the Gibeonites, can find shelter from the just wrath of God that we deserve. And that shelter is not the people of Israel, it's Jesus. He came to this earth as a human. He lived a perfect life, never once incurring God's wrath. He was brutally murdered on a Roman cross, which is what we all deserve. 
He died, was buried, and three days later rose again from the grave. When we turn from our sin and trust in that Jesus, the Bible tells us that we'll be forgiven and made right with God, and that we'll live forever with him in glory. That's a never-failing promise of God. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you more after the service and answer any questions that you might have. You can also fill out a contact card if you'd like me to give you a call this week and have a follow-up conversation. The God of Joshua and the God of the Bible is a God who sovereignly takes Gibeonites and redeems them. He's a God whose plan never fails. Praise God for that truth. Let's pray.